0: Alexander Nemirov is the author of Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler, and 1950s New York. Alexander is a professor in the Arts and Humanities Department at Stanford University. Before joining the faculty at Stanford, he was a professor in the Department of the History of Art at Yale University. From 2001 to 2012, a scholar of American art, he writes about the presence of art, the recollection of the past and the importance of humanities in our lives today. He's the author of Soulmaker, The Times of Lewis Hine, Silent Dialogues, Diane Arbus and Howard Nemirov, Wartime Kiss, Visions of the Moment in the 1940s. Acting in the Night, Macbeth, and Places of the Civil War, Icons of Grief, Val Luton's Home Friend Pictures, The Body of Raphael Peel, Still Life and Selfhood, I'm going to keep going with his books here, and Frederick Remington and Turn of the Century America. He has curated exhibitions including To Make a World, George Alt, and 1940s America. Among Professor Nemirov's recent essays are meditations on Charles Birchfield, Winslow Homer, Dennis Miller Bunker, Helen Frankenthaler, Joe Rosenthal, Gregory Crudson, Danny Lyon, William Eggleston, and Grandma Moses. His most recent books are Summoning Pearl Harbor and Soulmaker, The Times of Lewis Hine. And he is now writing his next book, The Forest, A Fable of America in the 1830s, to be published by Princeton University Press, based on the Andrew W. Mellon lectures he gave at the National Gallery in 2017. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's my pleasure. I am really excited to talk to you about Fierce Toys, look at this beautiful book about Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. Gorgeous. Congratulations on the story.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I
0: have to tell you that my mother is like a massive Helen Frankenthaler fan. And like is that right? Like obsessed with everything about her. And so when I got your galley way back when, I was like, oh my gosh, mom, you have to read this. So she <laughs> loved it. And anyway, so I've been hearing about Helen Frankenthaler my whole life. So I'm delighted to talk to you uh, about the book today. So why have you decided to write a whole book about Helen Frankenthaler? Are you also a huge fan and have you been forever?
1: Well, you know, Zibi, I think I've been hearing about Helen Frankenthaler my whole life too, in a but in a slightly different way, which is to say Helen Frankenthaler went to Bennington College and her senior year was my dad's first year there as a professor. And She, Helen, took a class with him, and I guess they stayed in touch over the years periodically. I certainly recall her name when I was growing up. I was born in Bennington, though we moved soon after that, but suffice it to say that she'd long been in the back of my mind. Then I began to just be aware how much I loved her paintings and Sometimes when I write about artists, the the reason for the liking, and there is no other reason to write about art unless you have strong feelings about it. So that's a given. But in, in sometimes the strong feelings, the reason for them is, is manifest right in a moment. Other times it takes longer. And I think, as I say in the book, I really needed to catch up to Helen and understand why her paintings moved me. And you know, Zibi, what I ended up coming away with was in choosing intuitively to write about the art she made in her 20s, you know, when she was just starting, because the book is about taking her from just after her graduation from Eddington to up to the age of 31, when she had her first one-person exhibition, is that I wanted to understand, value, love all the more, Helen's way of portraying what it's like to be a young person and to, we all know how intense being in our 20s is. And I think Helen was someone who lived that intensity in a very powerful way and moreover had the power to portray it on the wing, on the quick, life as lived, translated into aesthetic form. And I didn't necessarily, I was still I had all those feelings, but I wasn't able to translate it into art and genuine feeling in quite the way that she was. So I think better late than never. Glad I caught up to her in my 50s. And, <laughs> you know, although Helen died in 2011, I feel like we could probably have a decent conversation about her art Were she alive now.
0: Wow. And I love how you portray her. Has just It's almost like She's just another girl in her 20s in New York. And, like, what huh. she can, you know what I mean? It's like, and yet she yeah. becomes this legend. You have the scene, like, when she was feeling depressed, you said, you know, starting around New Year's 1953, Helen became depressed. She was paying sick calls to her mother, who was increasingly ill. You talk about a bunch of other things here, blah, blah, blah. A New York Times critic gave faint praise to her heart and soul efforts, including her favorite, The Vast Mountains and Sea. The works were fresh, pale, and pleasant, sweet, and unambitious. And then you said, sinking into lethargy, Helen found herself thinking that in her whole life, nothing mattered very much. Even her psychoanalytic sessions, on which she usually placed great store, struck her as boring. She was, quote, (laughs) not taking my life or myself or life or plans too seriously, not caring enough. She found herself taking afternoon naps. The sleep is wonderful, but the habit bothers me. And you just you said Helen was depressed because she felt like her life was at a standstill. So take me back to like that moment in, in her history and how that became a turning point.
1: Yes, well, if there's one painting people might know of Helen's off the top of their head, it would be the painting, you're talking about Mountains and Sea, which she painted in one day, one afternoon, October 26, 1952. And although that painting now hangs in the National Gallery in Washington and has been there for a number of years, at the time, as the Times review indicates, it was met with disdain, not just by art reviewers, but by Helen's fellow artists who thought it wasn't, I don't know, serious and angsty enough. And she was kind of lectured to by... The artist Larry Rivers and also privately her friend uh, or sometimes frenemy Grace Hartigan was very critical of that painting too. But Helen never really doubted that picture. You know, she said the lightest touch is always the hardest one. And that's something I've really learned from her. You know, we can thank you, me, anyone, that gravity, intensity, Depth, as we say, is always the sole road, the royal road to seriousness, profundity. But Helen really brought me to appreciate, to value the quality of lightness, of air, of atmosphere, which that picture is so much about. And, you know, pleasure poised on a balance as ephemeral, full of grace all of these things is what she portrayed. She knew to spend any more time on it would be to ruin it. But her lethargy, zibby had to do with precisely what she says. She wasn't sure even if she should be an artist anymore, even though she was really born to be an artist. She even interviewed kind of half-heartedly for a job at Time Life, though she was really put off by the starchy intellectualism of the whole, time-life building. She also was invited to help campaign for Adlai Stevenson because that painting was made just 10 days or so before the presidential election that Eisenhower won in a landslide over Stevenson. So she was thinking about different options. And then at the moment you describe, her show had gone up. She was still very proud of her paintings. No one was buying them. The reviews were diffident. Her fellow artists were suspicious. She was depressed for reasons beyond that. You know, part of what I say about being the 20s being an intense time is people, including Helen, are working out a lot of stuff or not working it out uh, or both. And the depression, I think, was something that happened to her as it happens to many people, unbidden. In that part of the book, I talk about her going to see this late Charlie Chaplin film called Limelight, in which there's a very beautiful ballerina who looks remarkably like Helen. She's pictured in the book, and Helen, not surprisingly, identified with this ballerina who, you know what, had this kind of psychosomatic illness that convinced her she couldn't get out of bed, that, you know, just like Helen, you know, basically taking long naps, and this feeling of illness and inadequacy was... Precisely related to her talent, you know, precisely related, if you watch a movie, which is wonderful, I think, to her incredibly rare ability as a dancer. So the same goes for Helen, which is to say, you know what, Zibi, when we talk about an artist, we use that word artist. I think even me, whose job it is to talk about artists, can sometimes use that term very glibly, when in fact, it's a very mysterious term. and. In Helen's case, it means there's a tremendous amount of energy, volatile emotion that is in there that is driven sometimes almost too fast for one's own liking by a relentless pursuit of aesthetic form. You know, I must make a picture. I cannot not make a picture. And that's, that's a volatile thing to handle and not everyone can handle it. Well, Helen made it through, you know, without dumbing down or numbing down all of the different emotions from laughter to despair that her work portrays.
0: You know, it's so interesting because I feel like writers are a type of artist. And I think so many writers feel the same way, right? They just have to write it down or they have to create and they have to, you know, dedicate their whole lives to sitting and in- in front of the computer on their sketchpad and trying to create at the expense of everything else, sort of similar to what you're saying about Helen. And like, there's so many people who are driven that way. And I'm wondering if you as a writer, because obviously, you know, there's so much research and you're like such a renowned sort of scholar of all of this material, but you are all, you know, as a writer, do you feel pulled to be doing this type of writing yourself?
1: Yes, I do. I think I'm much happier when I have written something in a day. And it balances, sort of structures my life. And it is, so I imagine, not just a matter of mental equilibrium, but also, you know, one is trying to make contact with life, right? To use words like Helen used paintings to portray what it is to be alive. And, you know, not in some universal sense, but precisely from the contingent, partial, limited vantage that one calls one's own. And yet the hope is that that perspective, that subjectivity, we call it, is not merely subjective, but is precisely by being so specific, accessible to other people, right? So with Helen, I've never tried to write a kind of doorstopper, omniscient biography. I've kind of used my own feeling for her work as my pathway into it and hopefully not deviated from that at all so as you know each each chapter of the book is is about one single day in her life from the year 1950 to the year 1960 it's kind of unabashedly partial in that way too but it's also true to Helen's art in the sense that she like me would suggest that you know anytime you're writing a sentence or putting paint on a canvas, you are presumably trying to do something that is not the same as ordinary life, not walking down the street or mailing a letter or whatever the case may be. And it's a religious conception of art in her case, which I'm attracted to, which is to say, you make a painting in order to reveal something about the world and that revelation is not didactic, it is not moralistic, it is instead kind of sensory and specific to feelings that are almost impossible to describe, but, you know, feelings like lightness, lift, sorrow, you know, feelings that we have, of course, handy words for, but words that are just finally placeholders, you know, so Helen is someone who's pushing paint to be able to portray states of mind, states of being, even just the feeling of walking down the street with the light kind of dappling through the shadows of the trees in a way that doesn't kill those experiences, but makes them live, makes them visible to the rest of us.
0: Beautiful. I mean, it's really like the power of art to evoke feeling, right? That's from your words to her work, That's really what all artists are trying, I think, at their core to do, right? Communicate what's inside their heads in some way to somebody else's head. It's really cool (laughs) when you think about it. I know that's ridiculous, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. Sort of a message in a bottle. Yes. It goes out there and the, the artist can't be sure where it will land, but the person who picks up the bottle will be the person for whom the picture was intended.
0: And I love that you mentioned the structure. I'm just holding up the book again, and I love how everything is in a day. That's so great. I mean, when you talk about like getting a slice of life of somebody's career, to do it in such a creative way is, is amazing. I mean, there's so many ways you could have approached her life. Right, like a bazillion yes. ways. I'm sure you debated <laughs> how to do it, but this is so great. And it just shows her growth as like an artist and over time. And I don't know, that's just a great tactic. I love it.
1: Well, thank you, Zibi. You know what? I didn't debate it.
0: You did not You just knew right away?
1: I, I knew right away that that's the way it would be. I didn't know which days. Mm-hmm. That was kind of fun to let the research dictate what might could and finally were the days of the book, but I, I knew that it would be these days, yes. Oh. It would be structured this on is days. This my
0: own, like, that I have to debate everything a million times. I'm just projecting how I imagined you would have done it, but... <laughs> well,
1: in fairness to you, I think sometimes that is the way it is for any writer, right? There are different formats and the, the, the right format becomes apparent only in the writing of things, so I understand that. It's just in this case somehow it wasn't, I didn't need to go through that preparatory thinking. Yeah.
0: I also love that this is an Upper East Side girl book as I sit here on the Upper East Side talking to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I spent a whole summer at Bennington, by the way. So I'm, oh, did you? yes, I'm very familiar with it. And I did a whole writing program, writing and photography. Wait, this is way oh, back when, but yeah.
1: Wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 I think Helen was such the Upper East Side person that when She did move to the lower west side. You know, she lived down in the west 20s when she was, when the book starts out. Uh, I think her family, I think her mother, it was, was very shocked, you know, that she would be living on the west side. The lower west side seemed impossibly bohemian. Yes.
0: I sublet an apartment in the meatpacking district when it was like just coming up a little bit south of that, but on the West side and my mother on the Upper East side had the same exact reaction. (laughs) So anyway, so what, what is coming next for you now? You have this beautiful book out in in the world. Who are you? Are you going to profile a different artist next or what's your plan?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm contemplating what my next book will be, I'm writing a very different book right now, which is about America in the age of Andrew Jackson, actually. Oh,
0: I just was doing that with my daughter. Her test is on Thursday. we are literally, I'm like deep in Andrew Jackson time. Wow.
1: What, what grade is your daughter? Seventh grade. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's about America in the 1830s and it's kind of the opposite of the Frankenthaler book in the sense that it's told from the vantage of many, many people known and unknown from that time. So I mentioned Andrew Jackson because he's a good place marker for that era, the 1830s. But it's actually a different kind of writerly challenge where it's everyone from farmers, slaves, poets, painters, politicians, and so on. So I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot. Hmm,
0: wow. I'll have to read that one. Now I feel like Mm. I am so clear on exactly what was going on at that time, whereas perhaps had I not brushed up on it over the weekend, I wouldn't have it.
1: Well, yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, one writes, uh, I don't know if this is true for you, but it must be in some way that one writes to learn, right? I think writing about Helen, I don't know. There's this curious way that one writes from a position of feeling that, one already has as i was talking about but at the same time one discovers more the nature of that feeling by virtue of the writing and i i've been thinking about the helen book now that in ways i didn't really appreciate when i was writing it it was a kind of coming into being of my own feelings about helen by virtue of writing the book if that makes sense yeah. like not not in a way that that really I could turn into formulae and you know simple descriptive sentences because I don't really believe in that. You know, I don't I tell my students here, for example, that they should avoid the the phrase, my book is about, you know, this artist and so on, because that word about, though it's understandable why people use it, implies a, you know, like the art is over there. And I, I say instead, you know, you should say, I write with the artist. And although the width is complicated because one doesn't want to be sort of just the publicist, as it were, for the artist, right? That's not what it's about. The width I take to mean has to do with kindred feeling, like wanting to inhabit the artist's fantasy and to write from that perspective, as opposed to distancing it and turning that fantasy, that whole imaginative life into kind of an object, which, you know... I don't know, is is limiting, I think.
0: Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: Yes, I guess so. (laughs) Write about what moves you, that's one thing, yeah. And discover what it is that moves you by writing. And often I think that means instead of going to a museum and feeling honor bound to look at all 1,000 paintings, each one for two seconds, instead Pick one thing that moves you, maybe by an artist you know you want to look at, maybe maybe by someone you've never heard of, whatever it is. It might be like a painting of a meadow with a stream running through it of a kind that even as you stand there for 5, 10, 15 minutes, a whole hour, or even for just 30 seconds before your friend drags you off to get an espresso, it stays in your mind and then it becomes the basis, the kernel for some idea and maybe it has to do with a memory you have maybe it has to do with some movie you saw once that featured a similar scene who knows but I would say right from that moment from that stream in that field and that stream is a kind of source for all that one has to give so I'm I guess a believer in the oak growing from the acorn
0: beautiful great well thank you for coming on Moms don't have time to read books. Alexander, thank you for this intimate look into Helen's life and her art, which I will never look at quite the same way again. And thank you for this conversation.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you, Zibi. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.